Hey, my name is Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for checking out this week's message. Uh, I hope that it's encouraging to you and inspiring to you. I hope that it causes you to dive deeper into the scriptures. And I hope that you're able to do that with some people around you, with some community. Um, but if you don't have that, we would love to invite you into the community here at Restore. If you want to take a next step, get more connected, you can just go to restoreaustin.org connect, fill out a card on there, and I will personally reach out to you in the days after you do that. And if you want to grab coffee with me or just get more information about the church, I will make myself available to you for that. As you will hear, we are in this thing called a year around the table, and it really comes from this vision that God's given us that Restore would be a place where anyone has a seat at the table and everyone experiences the extravagant love of Jesus. So A, I hope that you experience the extravagant love of Jesus as you check this message out. And B, if you don't have a table to sit at, we want to invite you to Jesus' table here at Restore. I want to start this morning, I want to show you a picture of Christianity Today's magazine this month, the cover of it. There it is right there. That's the cover. Christianity Today magazine this month. The cover article is titled, Empty Pews Are an American Public Health Crisis. Empty Pews Are an American Public Health Crisis. Now, I know what some of you are thinking, because I thought the same thing. Of course, Christianity Today is going to say that empty pews are a public health crisis, right? This is like McDonald's publishing an article that says, Big Macs cure depression, right? <laughs> They have a vested interest in this whole thing, right? But out of curiosity, I clicked it anyway. And to be honest, I was kind of blown away by the article. It was written by a professor of epidemiology. How many of you didn't know that word two years ago, but you do now? <laughs> professor of epidemiology at Harvard named Tyler Vanderweel and a researcher at Harvard named Brandon Case. Together, they lead something called the Human Flourishing program at Harvard University, which works to bring together various academic disciplines in order to develop systematic approaches that study and promote human flourishing. This means that the Human Flourishing program not only does their own research, they also gather and synthesize the research in essentially every field that you can think of in order to help understand and then advocate for things that help people experience fullness of life. One of their most recent projects, which became the basis for this article, was centered around studying the effects of religious service attendance on overall health, how those two things intersect, religious service attendance and overall health. Here's what they found. Regularly attending religious gatherings reduced the risk of suicide by 84%, drug and alcohol overdoses by over 50%, and depression by 29%. Their findings mirror research done by a myriad of other psych psychologists and social scientists which universally support the conclusion that religious service attendance is directly associated with longer lifespans, less depression, less suicide, less smoking, less substance abuse, better cancer and cardiovascular disease survival, greater social support, greater meaning in life, greater life satisfaction, more volunteering, and greater civic engagement. Now, all of this coincides with a study done by Gallup I shared with you a couple of months ago. They recently surveyed Americans and asked them to assess their own mental health. How are they doing? They found that every single subgroup of people experienced a decline in mental health in 2020. That's not all that shocking to us, right? But every subgroup, every race, gender, political affiliation, sexual orientation, marital status, age group, and household income, every group 
except one. The only group that came out of 2020 with better mental health were, quote, weekly religious service attenders. And that could be in person or online, and it's not even necessarily Christianity specifically. Even during the nightmare that was 2020, folks who were committed to their religious community experienced a four-point increase in mental health and then rated their mental health 12 points higher than the average American at the same time. Those are significant. That is statistically significant. Now, I get that was a lot of information. It was a lot of research. It was a lot of numbers. I also get that I'm a pastor up here talking to you about how important it is to be connected to a church. I realize that. I get it. We're just gonna, I'm going to own it and be honest with you. Because the reason I'm up here talking to you about this is not because I want Restore to become some megachurch, because I want all these seats to be filled up every week, because I want to have some kind of level of notoriety or something like that. If you know anything about kind of my story and our story, the opposite is kind of what usually happens with me and with Restore. Infamous would probably be a better term for me than famous. I'm telling you this because I care about you. Because I want you to experience each of those things that I just said. When the Harvard Center for Human Flourishing says, this is going to help you, I want you to experience human flourishing. I want that for you. Because I care about you, because I love you, because I'm a pastor, because this means something to me. Now, like I said, it was a lot of information, it was a lot of research, it was a lot of numbers. So if that's not really your thing, I want to tell you a story, a story about my friend, Brant. Some of you know Brant. I was going to use a made-up name, but when I texted to ask his permission to share this story, he enthusiastically said, of course you can share it, even use my name if you want to. So, Brant hadn't lived in Austin all that long when he started feeling isolated. He didn't really know anybody here, and he started feeling anxious about kind of what was next for him, both professionally and personally, and just really struggling. And after living with this anxiety and isolation for a while, he started to have suicidal thoughts, pretty serious suicidal thoughts. And one Saturday night, it was especially bad. So out of kind of desperation, he decided to Google churches and just try one the next day. And even though Brant spent some time in churches as a young kid, it had been years since he'd been back. And if he was being honest, he would have told you he didn't really like church. But that's how desperate he was in that moment. He found a few different churches online, clicked through their websites, and decided on Restore. Brant told me later this was because a few of the pastors had tattoos in their staff pictures. And he thought, I figured you couldn't be all that bad if you were tatted up. Which I said, yeah, maybe, maybe. <laughs> His first Sunday here, people embraced him, right? People greeted him when they walked in. He showed them where the coffee and the donuts were. They hugged him. They invited him to lunch afterwards, and they invited him to a restore group and to a Super Bowl party. And it was a matter of weeks. Brant went from feeling completely isolated to feeling like he, in his words, had a family. A couple of weeks after he came for the first time, I went to coffee with Brant, like I like to do with every new person who wants to. And we were sitting at Joe's Coffee just up the road here. And we were talking about Jesus and faith and church. He still had tons of questions, but he shared with me that he had been absolutely overwhelmed by the love he had received from this church family. People who didn't even know him had invited him into their homes and into their lives. 
And as we worked through his questions and we talked about what was next, he told me he wanted to take a couple of days. He wanted to think about a few things and kind of where he really stood with his faith and he would get back to me. Like 12 hours later, he texted me and he said, I don't need a few days. I'm, I'm ready to go all in with Jesus and this church and I want to be a part. And I don't know what that means, but, but I'm in. He made a deep, loving connection with God and with our church family, and nothing for Brant was ever the same again. Brant now leads in various areas of our church. In fact, he just finished leading a year-long Be the Bridge group about racial justice and reconciliation and just absolutely killed it along with Terry Aguirre. And I can tell you that Brant's story, the most amazing thing about it is that it's not the only story like Brant's is I look out at some of your faces and I know you have similar stories to Brant's. Because we need Jesus and we need each other. I don't think there's any getting around it. Between all the research and Brant's story, I hope you understand why I can't stop talking about how important making deep connections with God and with each other really is. It's important because I care about human flourishing. It's important because when they asked Jesus why he left the perfection of heaven and came to the brokenness of earth, he said, I have come that they may have life and have it in all its fullness. Jesus cares about your flourishing. Human flourishing, fullness of life, these are not just our values. These are Jesus's values. They're the cornerstone of his kingdom. And I'm telling you all this because I want you to experience the abundant life that Jesus talks about. I want you to experience his, his grace and his goodness. I want you to be surrounded by people who love you without prejudice or qualification and would do anything to support you, no matter where you are on this journey of faith. See, I believe this is God's dream for you. And for every other member of humanity, like we say in the welcome video, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter your lifestyle or background or anything else about you, you are welcome here in this family. You are welcome in God's family because God wants you to experience the fullness of life that comes from that. This morning, we're in week two of a teaching series called Invited to the Table. During the series, we're kind of looking at stories from Scripture that take place around tables with the hope that we will come to understand and practice two truths. Number one, that everyone has a seat at Jesus' table with their name on it. And number two, that we as the church have been called to invite people to sit with us at Jesus' table and experience his extravagant love. Last Sunday, we talked about how Jesus' table is a place for everyone. There are not exclusions for it. It's not our table, it's his table. And our job is simply to make sure that anyone who wants a seat has one. Today, we're talking about how Jesus' table is a place for connection. Last week, it was a place for everyone. This week, it was a place for connection. We're going to look at the story of Mary and Martha. We're going to be in chapter 10 of Luke's account in Jesus' life, starting in verse 38. So if you want to turn there in your Bible or on your phone or whatever, you can totally do that. The verses will also be on the screen behind me if you want to follow along there. Luke chapter 10, verse 38. Now, before we jump in, though, if you have some extended church background, chances are you've heard the story of Mary and Martha. Even if you don't have much church background, it's kind of made its way into popular culture a little bit. And chances are you heard it preached through a very patriarchal lens, 
that ends up either demeaning household tasks or shaming women for not adhering to their proper roles. This morning, I want to offer a different and I believe much more accurate and biblically centered perspective. It's not one that I've made up or anything. It's held by a wide variety of scholars and goes back centuries. But I believe it's also more congruent with the character and the mission of Jesus as depicted throughout Luke's gospel and all the other accounts of Jesus' life. You see, like so many of these stories around Jesus, the story of Mary and Martha is a story about liberation. Jesus is liberating these two sisters, and I believe he wants to use their story to help liberate us too. So let's jump in. Luke 10, starting in verse 38. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened up her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him, that's Jesus, and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. So as we've already talked about throughout this year at the table, mealtime is an incredibly important time throughout all of the scripture, but even more so in the gospel accounts. One scholar suggests that in Luke's account of Jesus' life, Jesus is either on his way to eat, currently eating, or just coming from having eaten. That's how important it is. That's how central the table is in Jesus' life. Now, that might be a slight overstatement, but the point remains, table fellowship is absolutely central to the life and mission of Jesus. This story is no different. Jesus and his disciples arrive in this town of Bethany and decide to take a break from their travels and to stay with Mary and Martha at their house. Now, we can assume, kind of from previous travel patterns and what we know surrounding this text, that they were going to be there, Jesus and his followers, for at least a few days, and that this home would kind of become a central hub for meals and teaching during their time in Bethany. Now, this is obviously a stressful situation, right, for Mary and for Martha as the homeowners and the hosts. The passage describes Martha as, quote, distracted, but that's not really a great translation of the Greek word that's originally used here. Because when we think of being distracted, right, we think of something like absent-mindedness or having our attention diverted from something that we're trying to do. We can't get work done because someone keeps talking to us or we struggle to focus because we have a lot on our minds. But the word used here is actually much more grave. Martha was troubled and distressed, anxious and agitated because she feels like she has been abandoned by her sister and forced to do all the hosting alone. She is so upset by this turn of events that she directly confronts Jesus about it. Don't you see how hard this is for me, Lord? Don't you care? Do something about it. Well, let's see how Jesus responds. Verse 41, Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed or indeed only one. One thing is needed. Keep that in your mind. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Now, Jesus' response here has often been framed by preachers as a rebuke of Martha. But honestly, according to what we know about the text, the original language, the culture, that could not be further from the truth. The repeating of her name twice communicates deep affection and gentleness. He doesn't say Martha. He says Martha, Martha. He knows her. He loves her. He cares about her her. He says, Martha, I do see you, and I do care for you. 
But rather than giving her a lecture, Jesus offers Martha liberation. He says, there is only one thing that is needed. And what is that one thing? I believe it's connection. It's intimate relationship. Mary is already experiencing it, right? Against all odds, Mary chose to sit at the feet of Jesus in the posture of a disciple and soak in his presence and in his words. Now, when I say Mary is doing this against all odds, I mean more specifically she is doing it by defying cultural norms and actually breaking Jewish law. That space was supposed to be reserved for men only, but Jesus not only welcomes Mary into it, he invites Martha to join her there. Jesus offers these sisters liberation from oppressive religion, from unjust laws, from social anxiety, from isolation, from distress. And he does it all through what he says is the one thing that is needed, deep connection. Stop what you're doing, Jesus says. Come and sit with me. Leave behind the cultural expectations, even the old covenant law, and come and sit with me. This is the same offer that Jesus makes to me and to you and to everyone else. He beckons us, come and sit with me. Experience intimate relationship with me and my family. I promise there is nothing like it. Because when it comes to Jesus' table, everything else takes a back seat to connection. When it comes to Jesus' table, everything else takes a backseat to relationship. There are so many things that weigh us down, y'all. If I tried to enumerate just the ones that we've been navigating over these last couple of years, I would be up here all day. And I don't even think not everything that weighs us down is bad, right? Even good things can get in the way of us experiencing the depth of connection that Jesus offers around that table. Connecting with God and connecting with one another is the thing that is needed above and before everything else. In fact, every other good thing actually flows out of those connections. Remember, they asked Jesus what the most important thing in the whole world was, and he said, love God and love your neighbor. That connection, that intimate relationship is more important than every other thing. When Jesus had one final opportunity to share one last message with his closest friends, he simply said, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Connection, relationship, love. As the incomparable Maya Angelou so famously said, I am grateful to have been loved and to be loved now and to be able to love because that liberates love liberates. Before we worry about anything else, Jesus's table must be a place of loving connection between us and God and between me and you and between all of us. When we come to realize that these connections are the foundation of church, it becomes abundantly clear why empty pews are an American public health crisis. And it becomes even more apparent why unhealthy, toxic, and abusive churches cause such tremendous damage. But my hope is that it also illuminates why what all of us are trying to do here at Restore really matters. 
because despite all of its issues, I am still convinced that there is nothing like the local church when it's healthy, inclusive, justice-driven, and Jesus-centered. Let me say that again. There is nothing like the local church when it's healthy, inclusive, justice-driven, and Jesus-centered. This week, Rachel Held Evans' final book was post, posthumously, post, posthumously. Let's say it real fast and then you won't know. <laughs> posthumously released. She had about 11,000 words of it written when she tragically passed away two years ago at the age of 37. And her husband, Dan, asked her good friend and writer, Jeff Chu, to take the manuscript and a bunch of unpublished essays and other correspondence and kind of put them together in this final book. And it's called Wholehearted Faith. I, you know, pre-ordered it months and months ago, and so it came out on Tuesday, and I thought I would devour it, right? Like, as soon as I got it, I thought I would just roll through it. But honestly, I've had to read it in, like, really small parts because I keep getting emotional every time I open it up. Y'all should definitely get a copy for yourself and check it out. It's really great. But even if you don't, you're going to be hearing quotes from it here on Sundays for a while. So you can probably get most of the book that way. But in the prologue, Rachel talks about why she still holds on to her faith and to the church, even when she doubts, even after she's been hurt. And there's one paragraph where she talks about the church in such a way that resonated with me so much and is so applicable to what we've been talking about this morning. I just want to share it with you. All right, so here's what she says. Humans are fickle. Faith can be fragile. And the church, that rambunctious collection of the fickle and the fragile, is a broken and complicated institution. Wholehearted faith means putting yourself at risk of being hurt by that institution and its people. Yet I have not managed to find a corner of it where grace cannot break through and where there is not enough spiritual oxygen for that grace to grow. If we make ourselves vulnerable to the possibility of getting hurt, we also open ourselves up to the hope of healing, to the hope of being touched by that ridiculous grace. Like Mary and Martha, Jesus is offering each of us a seat at his table, a place for connection. He's offering to liberate us from whatever is keeping us from feeling like we have a seat there or taking a seat or being fully engaged once we sit down. He's liberating us from oppressive religion, from social anxiety, from loneliness, and from the toxic ideology which says we can do everything on our own. But we have to say yes. He's not going to force it on us. And like Rachel wrote, saying yes means making ourselves vulnerable to the possibility of being hurt, maybe even being hurt again. So I know some of your stories. I know church is a place where you've experienced hurt. Church is a place where I've experienced hurt. But if we don't open ourselves up to that, we'll never open ourselves up to the hope of liberation to the hope of love, and to the hope of deep connection with God and with others. So what might it look like to open ourselves up in this way? Practically, what what does it look like to foster deep connection with God and with others? I have a few ideas. I think it starts by seeing Jesus' table as well as our own tables 
as places where deep connection should be prioritized above everything else. It means living invitationally, inviting people out for coffee, over for dinner, to sit with you at church, to get a drink at a bar, and everything in between. It means slowing down enough to actually get to know someone, listening more than we speak, asking more questions than we provide answers. A friend of mine used to always say, splitting a six-pack with five other people is so much better than drinking six beers by yourself. (laughs) I love that so much. Oh, man. It means seeing people as fellow humans, made in the image of God, not a commodity to be used up for our own gain. It means intentionally building time into our schedules for unhurried connection. Look, we're all busy. I get it. I feel like most of the conversations I end up having like devolve into some discussion of who's busier, right? It's awful. You all know what I'm talking about. We're all busy. We're all trying to do important things. We're all trying to do too much. That is kind of the the part of societal pressure that we live in. We're all trying to just accomplish and do all the time. But if we forsake connections with God and with people for the sake of accomplishment, I promise we will end up terribly sad and terribly alone. It's not the things that we do that give life meaning. It's the people that we do them with. It means seeing our collective liberation and flourishing as tied together. Scripture says that we are the body of Christ. When one part suffers, we all suffer. When one part experiences fullness of life, we all experience fullness of life. We are like a big forest full of redwood trees. Nobody knows what I mean. All right, let me explain. Let me explain. Did y'all know that even though redwood trees often grow to over 250 feet tall, their roots only grow about 10 feet down? 250 feet tall, they only grow about 10 feet down. But even though they only grow 10 feet vertically, they grow hundreds of feet horizontally, looking for other redwood trees to connect with. Trees, especially redwoods, are actually social creatures. Through these underground root systems, they send messages to each other. Scientists have observed when one tree is being hurt by a specific insect, it will actually send messages to other trees in the area, and those trees will preemptively develop defense enzymes against that insect. How incredible is that? Redwood trees have even been known to share nutrients with each other to help the whole grove stay healthy. If one tree is sick, the other trees will actually divert their nutrients to that one tree that's struggling until that tree gets better. How incredible is that? As humans, our flourishing, our liberation is all tied together. Our root systems are entangled, so to speak. We can't forget that. We must reject the lie that we can do everything on our own and embrace the truth that God designed us for deep connections with him and with each other. And then we have to take practical steps to foster that connection around Jesus' table and around our tables too. So I want to end with this encouragement from the anonymous author of Hebrews. 
writing to a group of Christians and churches trying to kind of navigate the difficulties of doing life together, this is what they say. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this morning, for a time to be together, a time to shake hands and give fist bumps and to share coffee and donuts and conversations, a time to shout out good news and to rejoice with one another, a time to to pray and mourn with one another. God, I thank you that you saw fit to establish this thing called church, this community of people, not buildings, not structures, not even sermons or songs, but people who deeply love you and love each other and see our destinies, our root systems as intertwined together. God, I pray that your table here at Restore and our tables, wherever they might be, would always be a place where we prioritize connection. Where we know from the story of Mary and Martha and tons and tons of others that you prioritized connection, intimate relationship. God, slow us down. Help us realize that the busyness, that accomplishments, that all of that is, is not the answer to having fullness of life, to experiencing human flourishing, but deep connection with you and with others is. Help us make space for that, God. Whether it's here in this room or whether it's in our homes or coffee shops or bars or restaurants or anywhere else, God, prompt us to build times of unhurried connection in our lives with you and with each other. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.